Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Philosophy is an expansive field of study, an all-encompassing field of study. Because of this, ideas can come together in any number of ways, creating new theories and arguments where none previously existed. So while many may think of the classical philosophers as the titans of the field, the fact is that many hugely relevant contributions to how we construct meaning have been developed recently and are still in development today. There's no better example of this than Mary Midgley, a woman who took information from a number of diverse disciplines and synergized them into a new way of looking at the world. So we've noticed um, with our philosophy topics that something that you guys seem to be real interested in is um, individual philosophers. Uh, you know, we we love covering different topics and stuff, but we've really noticed that um, what catches your guys' attention is talking about, um, you know, individual philosophers. And so far, we've covered two, um, you know, very foundational um, philosophers in Heigl and, and Kant. Uh, so what we would like to do kind of going forward is when we look at different philosophers, try to be more balanced in our approach of classical versus modern, um, male and female, and um, look at people from different parts of the world as well. So, um, you know, we can kind of be expecting that and looking forward to that. And uh, we'll see where it see where it takes us. You know, it might be like some of our other things. We'll take a break and look at look at different topics and, and come back to it and stuff. But uh, you you seem to like looking at philosophers, so we'll try to mix in a few more of them than we than yes. we have in the past. Yeah. So Mary Midgley, um, before we start, what are some biographical details you can provide about her? Well, she was very long lived. Mary Midgley uh, was born in. Uh, 1919, I believe, and she and she passed away in 2018. <laughs> so she was with us until. And, and the interesting thing is that uh, in the obituaries uh, for her, um, so many people said her work, even though she was prolific, there's many, many, many books, hundreds of articles, interviews. Uh, she. Uh, her work is still ongoing because she was in the process of collaborating with a, a lot of people in her 99th year. Uh, but weeks before her birthday, she was an intense collaborative uh, emailing and phoning and so on with a number of uh, younger colleagues. And so there's a lot of her work that's still out there. But here she was, 99, and her another book came out. That she had written, and and she was known to have said from time to time she had a, apparently a very very dry sense of humor, very formidable uh, a woman who, with interviewers, would uh, bring them into her cottage, insist on giving them a little food first because once they talked about ideas, she was going to forget to serve the food. <laughs> she'd make them soup and, and such, and and then sit down and they and they would generally uh, say they would ahead of time were sort of trepidatious about talking to her feeling like they were going to feel stupid no matter how much they, they might know and and she could apparently uh, slice you apart like a, a good jedi uh if she thought that you were being foolish but but she also seemed to be very welcoming of of ideas when you were sincere but the fact that uh, here's a person who at age 99 had written her newest book yeah, it's a remarkable piece. It's uh, her books are not generally long, but they're very lucid. They're written out on the ground. There are kind of stuff, and and that's one of the reasons you and I were talking about uh, going toward uh, current philosophers and and women and and international philosophers because uh, it's we don't ever want to give the impression that it all just happened back whenever. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very much, as you said in the intro, happening now. Uh, she also was what one might call a late bloomer, her, her self-description. So she was uh, among really a trio of incredibly powerful philosophers in the 1940s during World War II at university. Excuse me. <coughs> but uh, uh, her first book wasn't published until, I believe, 1972. Yeah. 
and and then she just book after book after book, um, and and she said, among other things, that the reason she wrote was that other people would make her furious, <laughs> and she wanted to make sure that she took those ideas on. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll definitely look at a little bit of that um, later on. But yeah, here's another example. You know, all three philosophers we've looked at so far, um, it's really an example of, you know, what you can do throughout the human lifespan. And I, I can't remember the exact quote from her, but what, what she said was, um, you know, she published her first book when she was almost 60. And she said, I'm glad that that's when I published my first book, because before then, I didn't know what I thought. And, you know... <laughs> And that's true. I think that if you're somebody who's serious about philosophy, you don't come to conclusions about the biggest questions, uh, you know, in five minutes, right? You, no, this, no. These are things that you think about your whole life. And then you, and even then, you know, you don't come to conclusions, but you think about these questions your whole life and you do what we do in our conversations, right? You kind of sort of try to triangulate a general area of where your beliefs lie, and they're subject to change every single day when, you know, reading new things, um, new information, all these different types of things. But yeah, um, I thought that was a, a very interesting quote. Yeah. And yeah. Um, like you said, after that, you know, she wrote over 15 books between the age of 60 and, and 99, right? So yeah. there's, you know, it, there's a lot of ageism in in modern society, modern American society. Um but especially when it comes to philosophy, um, a lot of that gets turned on its head. You know, you don't see a whole lot of uh, there's no like there's not a whole lot of bright, shining young stars in philosophy. It's all people who, you know, they they think and they work their whole lives and then they reap the fruit of that labor um, after a significant period of time. Yeah. yeah. So what were some of Midgley's primary contributions to philosophy? What were her big ideas? Uh one of the big ideas is a metaphor that uh, she called the plumbing metaphor, and and people refer to it as the plumbing metaphor. So, and I I think it's really useful. And again, I've mentioned this before because my my dad was a lifelong mechanic, and so he'd often explain things in terms of how machines work. And so here's uh, this incredibly brilliant woman. Uh, Male philosophers, I've never heard say anything uh, quite like this. She says that the practicing philosophy um, is is analogous with plumbing because uh, really it becomes it's so buried within a larger structure that you don't really notice it until you don't do it. <laughs> when the plumbing stops working, uh, and and then you need it. And then you begin to think, how complicated is all the piping? And how many layers are there in the structure in which you're living? So she she would she had that as a metaphor. She also had a very organic in some of the later books at least uh, <clears throat> where she referred to philosophical ideas as um, in environmental terms, so there'd be a landscape, and certain ideas would take root and flourish, uh, but then some other idea would come along, like some some uh, introduced plant or weed or whatever, and and overtake that I- idea because it's time to move on had arrived, and uh, I, I like that because she was she she was a a holistic philosopher, uh, meaning unlike a number of people we've talked about or or made reference to who've done incredible work and make us think constantly, but but try to parse scalpel, take the scalpel to uh, break down into ultimate units and particles, uh, words, for instance. So you somebody writing a whole book about when is the proper way to use although in a sentence philosophically. And and, and that uh, is not what she did. She was trying to pull together all kinds of ideas across the so-called system and say what was the overarching 
truths that we could find within that. Yeah, and it was really refreshing looking at some of her ideas and, and very interesting because you're right, it's it's like an inductive versus a deductive approach. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I like to think that we do a, a little bit of each here, but we, we're primarily doing that same thing, right? We're, we're trying to parse things apart. We're trying to establish definitions. And um, she didn't do a lot of that. She didn't wrestle as much with human language as she did try to situate um, you know, patterns of reality within what, what we're looking at as a whole, you know, and, and, and trying to, uh, trying to look at things that way. So, um, yeah, we'll, and we'll talk about how she got into some of that in, in a little bit. Um, let's, let's real briefly talk about what were Midgley's views on, on women in philosophy. This is the first women philosopher that we've, we've talked about. Um, what were, what were sort of her viewpoints on that? Well, she did make, uh, in, with interviewers, she had made comments from time to time, being asked about the fact of World War II going on when she was doing her um, collegiate studies and encountering other women who were doing the same thing, and uh, asked, well, was that be- with so, so many men were gone, did that make a difference? And, and she said, well, probably we got, I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but probably we got more attention than we might have. Uh, has uh, had it been a, a non-combative situation, but there there have been. This is why we must talk about it, plentiful uh, philosophers who are women. It's not just philosophers who are men, and, uh, and philosophers now who are trans, and philosophers across our our diverse, uh, growing embrace of humanity but she uh, she thought that not overall but she seemed to express that oftentimes to her uh, male philosophers seemed more likely to be binary in their engagement i'm going to enter a debate i'm going to win no matter what and that, even though people made her furious, she wanted to put ideas out there. It wasn't that she was trying to win something. She was trying to, uh, saying, you, you really must think about this just because. Mm-hmm. And and so she was contrasting, I think, that approach. Yeah, and you can see a lot of that in, in the way that she, she talks about things. Um, uh, specifically, when it comes to... Uh, kind of religion and science and, and some of these other things where yeah. she takes a stance where you know your your gut reaction especially in our our sort of um you know polarized current situation she'd say something and say well i don't think that that's right but her for her whole thing is well i'm not saying this right but i'm saying you need to think about you know <laughs> and this goes to biographical details so her father as i recall was a vicar her her family uh, her parents were Christian. She avowedly wasn't, um, and so there there have been, as you say, in the polarized nature of things, people who who grab her work and hold it up as a, a shining example of of a, an evangelical Christian speaking philosophy. No, she wasn't. She re, she said, "No, I'm not doing that," but but she didn't disavow God. Yeah, and and she and she very much believed that science was important, but she was she was adamant about scientism. Yeah, which is different, right? I think we've talked about this. Before. Yeah, and and we'll cover that in a little bit because I I love really love the way that she approaches science and and specifically natural selection. But uh, yeah, it's it's <laughs> she's a funny one to follow because if you wanted to cherry pick quotes from her, you could make her say almost anything you want. But it, that, it's not that she had contradictory views; it was more just that she was saying that you should you should be looking at these different things because, like you said, um, you know she she said that she wasn't a Christian; she couldn't make it work. I think yeah. was her direct yeah. quote. Yeah. But then she also said that. You know, should we should we abandon you know religion for you know science? No, 
There's things that science can't answer. Religion has, you know, religion does a good job of answering certain questions that that science can't, and it's important for people's moral compasses and these sorts of things. And so it's funny, you know, because we're used to, you know, we're used to this adversarial sort of system, you know, where you're you're taking the stance of a lawyer, right? So if you're the the defense attorney, you're going to try to completely mitigate any sort of uh things that your client's done if you're the, the you know the uh the prosecutor you're going to try to ag- aggravate all of these things yeah. it's not the right way to do things right it's it's best <laughs> to try to look at it in an objective viewpoint and say okay well my defendant did do these bad things but there was also these other things that that bared out and like you know the, the whole the system should be to try to find the truth not to try to defend your viewpoint and it's unfortunate that in the philosophy um sometimes that does become the case but that's one of the refreshing things looking at midgley's she was not that way um it was more about like you said examining ideas and uh trying to place them within what she was what she was seeing but um yeah and you know i speak you know talking about women in philosophy you're absolutely right there was it's not like it's just you know our our uh more liberal modern times either there was ancient greek philosophers who were women you know there's so women have always been in philosophy and you know and you and i are obviously proponents of anybody who's thought about a a deep question has done philosophizing so every everybody on the face of the earth um has philosophies everybody needs plumbing right yeah yeah (laughs) of some kind you know now how much effort you put into it and and how well you 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 think of these these arguments is a is a different story but Mm -hmm. you know there's there's, you know, there's people from ancient times. There's people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds that that they need to be heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have interesting ideas. So we're we're looking forward to um to exploring those. But you know, it's funny her, the way she talked about women in philosophy after World War II. It really falls into that metaphor that that she was that you mentioned earlier, right? You know, it's the kind of thing where, okay, well, when if you look at it as plants, well, if, if one species of plant started to, you know, to die off, another one came in and kind of filled the gap. And that's a fascinating thing about history, right? It's one of my favorite things to do is look at famous people in history and read their entire background story. Because, you know, lots of times you find, okay, well, they came from a pretty normal background. And in many cases, you, you find yourself asking the question, well, how much of where they are today is this big, important idea they had or the hard work that they put in or just being in the right place in the right, the right time? time. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that's, in, you know, and in no way diminishes Midgley's ideas, right? Because these thoughts that she had are obviously important. Right. But the access of the public to those thoughts based on the the societal demographic makeup of the time you know it's very likely that she might never have been heard if there wasn't world war ii not for lack of the the promise of the ideas but for you know the the patriarchal system that's in place and and some of these other things that contribute to it she she in in some interviews one reads she would essentially giggle just a bit when people are asking about her ideas uh becoming much more uh, popular now now being <laughs> in the you know the 21st century and 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 she would rather humbly say well i didn't i didn't really expect that i was going to be read much but this is quite delightful <laughs> so you know so but as you said earlier just just from the viewpoint of of teaching us Patience, teaching us, sticking with the things that you are deeply uh, interested in and, and involved in is is amazing. You know, I, I told you when I when I the retirement uh, happened with me, uh, I was well, I'm 63 now, and was outdated, and I was beginning to feel like I was finally becoming. Uh, Getting much closer to becoming the teacher that I was wanting to be since I started out at age twenty-three, <laughs> right? And and you have that sense of things that aggregate and uh, and develop and web and experientially and intellectually and all this start to inform you in ways that you couldn't be when you were a kid, <laughs> you know, essentially. And 
and I and I and I admire her for this because of her. I don't admire somebody for their longevity. Their longevity happens for reasons that are attributable and not. But I admire her for her constant intellectual curiosity and engagement with things. And 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 finally, her work. I mean, her work was noticed. Her work was important among in the philosophical community, but in the broader community. What in in your later eighties? Yeah, <laughs> into your really into your nineties. Oh, so you're, you're essentially heading into your tenth decade when oh people are paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, like you said, if you if you're doing it that long, you're not doing it to be recognized. You're not mm. doing it to be. You're doing it because that it's something that you love to do and it's something that's important to you. None of us can. What she said, none of us can study anything properly. Unless we do it with our whole being, hmm. so it's, it's not being dispassionate and standing back away from it and just oh well, I'll just look at this at a distance. No, everything you 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 have to be all in. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about it. We mentioned it just briefly. How did Mitchell conceptualize the relationship of science and and religion? <sighs> Well, you said uh, the combative nature. She was, I think, it's fair to say she was intrigued by it and finding it uh, not terribly helpful. Uh, that that science cannot solve anything. She was very uh, well. The names Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins, whose work I have read, whose I've enjoyed, who are marvelously combative in their own ways, uh, perhaps male, but um, who will make arguments uh, that consciousness is all mechanical. We've we've alluded to this before, but that that all the chemicals and the and the electrical charges and so on within it, so on within us, and that really. Uh, clearly got under her uh, mind and into her mind under her skin uh, because she she made the argument in her later books that that is essentially saying that we don't exist so why would we be writing anything and talking about anything because we don't exist anyway it's foolish to say that we don't exist or her her you know, paraphrasing her again and therefore we got to stop this nonsense <laughs> so she she i think it, it would be reasonable to say that she was taking us back to the idea of dualism we've talked about descartes mm-hmm. a little bit and 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 that she's saying that the the materialists the the, the philosophers who say that there's nothing but the things we can see, the things we can touch, just the physical stuff. And the physical stuff of the body is what makes what we call consciousness. And she was saying that that is like essentially um, putting forth that uh, there's not a mind and body problem because there's no mind. There's just a body. Right. <laughs> and she rejected that. Yeah. And it's... um. I mean, the story itself is kind of funny because, um, you know, she, at Dawkins, I think his feelings were sort of hurt by it because <laughs> she, you know, he's some of the remarks he made later. And, you know, Dawkins is kind of known for being, um, you know, the, uh, the champion for evolution versus a, a lot of, uh, Christian philosophers and things. And, um, you know, and so you can hear that ad- the adversarial voice, right, saying, "Well, then Midgley must be against the theory of evolution." No, she wasn't. She oh. had, um, you know, she was very much um, on board with the idea of natural selection, but she was quick to point out that natural selection, as outlined by Darwin, was much different from the neo-Darwinism that was being espoused by Dawkins and some of these other right the social social socio-biological Darwin yeah Yeah, so this question of dualism you know like we talked about with Descartes this is still a question that we're wrestling with today and you know and I think that looking at science and looking at philosophy I think that we're getting closer I think that we're making some ground with some of the the newer experiments but I still would be surprised if this wasn't one of the last mysteries that humankind ever had to face right how would you how do you answer this question because you look at it and in very simplistic terms um both arguments seem almost irrefutable right you, mm. you look at it okay well how could 
anything that I'm experiencing not be coming from material things, right? And you don't even have to stick with, with you know, uh, scientifically accepted things, right? If you just say, well, I maybe you're not just neurons and, and electricity and this sort of thing, but maybe maybe there's some kind of particles that we don't understand or we don't know about that maybe they're having some effect, but that's still material stuff, right? You know, so you think, well, then obviously we're just a material thing. Maybe it's material we don't understand, but we're a material thing. But then, like Midgley was saying, right? Here we are having these rich, subjective experiences, and we're able to do things um, that seem incomprehensible if you're just looking at the parts that make it up. And she had a good analogy about like, hey, nobody ever says a carburetor wins a race, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the carburetor, yeah, it's, it's the car. Yeah. And, you know, that was sort of her argument is, you know, you can't say that the neurons firing make up the person, you know, the the whole person as a as a synergized organism is is what a human being is and there is something there's something else there right that yeah. consciousness yeah. it's something be, you know we 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 examine other you know other things and we we see and you know what what sort of things they do can i sit here and say I, I do sit here in my mind. I, I, I often find myself during the day, uh, it may sound odd, but I don't think, I think many of us do this. You, you look at your body and say, hmm, that's not, that's not me. You look in the mirror and you say, no, yeah. that's, that's not me. Or you, or you become aware of just how much of a machine or shell wonderfully and possibly complicated organic thing this is but but there's still a ghost in the machine <laughs> yeah and because otherwise why would i say oh this is my body but i'm talking and then the, the materialist people like uh, dawkins I, well, I shouldn't say dawkins uh, crick francis crick the dna um, find I mean, she took on some pretty big Folks, because she was a big folk herself, <laughs> uh, or Lawrence Krauss, the physicist, or or you know Dawkins and Dennett. But to to, to assert that it's all a, a trick that our physical selves are playing in order to make our physical selves continue and then and then replicate so that we have more physical selves and and that just didn't do it for her. Yeah, and you know. I bet, I'm betting there's a lot of people out there right now that that are kind of on Dawkins' side, right? Because because of that argument I just presented, right? Well, how could I, the, my subjective self, how could I be made up of anything that's not material, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd encourage you to look up the the experiment. You can find it online. I just watched it recently. Of um, scientists, what they're doing is they're they're putting up a, a partition, right, right at your shoulder. Uh, at a table yeah. and you put your arm on the other side of the partition so you can't see it and then they put a fake arm on your side of the partition and then they throw a blanket over your shoulder so you can't see that the fake arm doesn't connect and you can't see your real arm going around the partition and then they do essentially a conditioning exercise where they sort of take a feather and they, they rub it along all of the fingers of your real hand and your fake hand at the same time and it sends these messages to your brain that, that, you know, something's going on. And eventually your brain adopts this fake arm, right? <laughs> and then they start doing experiments with, um, you know, again, tickling it with a feather or pricking it with a pin. Yeah. And you watch these people and they can have pins pushed all the way through their real hand and not react. But if you put a pin in the fake hand, they express pain. And <laughs> hitting them with hammers and doing these different things, you know, right? Well, how is that, right? You know, yeah. can you explain it neurologically just looking at the nerves? Well, yeah, I'm sure that you, you see some nerve firings happening where it's adopting this new appendage and it's forgetting an old one. But the subjective eye, you know, of... It just lingers. It just yeah. stands there and sticks out its tongue at us. Right. You haven't found me yet. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> again, you know, I... Looking at these two arguments, it's it's really something where 
man, will you ever know the answers? And, you know, and I, we've talked about the adversarial nature of it. Well, maybe it's not finding that answer. It's just considering the, the question. Yeah, that, that's well put. That, that's why she, she often compared philosophy to drawing a map. Now, I know you've done map drawing in, in various experiences. I think most of us at one point or another, even trying to give somebody directions to go somewhere, we might be embarrassed by our maps. But, but to draw a map, you have to either remember someplace you've been or have some knowledge of the terrain and how you might get there. But it's not like there's one way to get there. Uh, you can have a very uh, all kinds of different kinds of trips. You can also draw a map of where you've been once you've done the exploring of, of, of going through. So it's it's not a it's not a mechanistic process uh, so much as a again a holistic one. She also uh, said philosophy doing philosophy is is like chasing rabbits. Well, my my granddaughter, <laughs> a little toddler now, is it takes great delight. She she just wants to catch a robin to talk to it, and and she sees robins bobbing around on the on the fields as we walk from day to day. May I chase robin? Yes. Okay. Go 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 for it. Running across this field, first trying to sneak up, getting so close. And blah, <laughs> and the rabbits take off. But the wanting to go for it again. But you know, haven't we all done something like this? Where you'd see how close can I get to that fish and try to catch it with my hand in the water? And I think that's a playful, um, very accurate metaphor for going after ideas. Yeah, and I think that I think that there's something important about it to the human brain that you do it. The most recent one I was doing recently is I was looking at this pamphlet. It was for a vacation destination, right? And so it's on this peninsula of beach. And so what they had is three rows of like these condos, right? Mm -hmm. So two of those rows are along the actual beachfront. But then there's one in the middle between the other two condos and there's a road separating them. And they have these nice hedges around the places and stuff. And so you're looking at it from the bird's eye or roughly bird's eye. And I was thinking, well, if I was actually in the lawn of one of these middle condos, I wouldn't be able to see the water. And so unless you could hear the waves, you might not know that you're near a beach, you know? <laughs> and so I think there's something about that, you know, looking at things through your perspective and then zooming out and trying to, to look at things from a bigger point of view. And yeah, there, it is a playful thing. Is, is there any sort of direct um, benefit or lesson to be learned from doing that? No, but I think that it's sharpening some mental tools that will help you with some of those things in the future. It is, which which itself is a benefit, even if it's a down-the-road uh, benefit. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and th I think that that's I think she'd probably agree with that because I think that's part of the reason she was sort of an anti-reductionist and anti-materialist <laughs> um, was because she, you know, I think that she knew on some level that if you got tied up in this idea that, that science had all the answers and science could fix everything, it's like being stuck in that first person point of view. And you want to know what? You might be 20 feet from a beach and not know that you're on an island, you know, yeah. and it's dangerous. It's a good, um, it's a good metaphor, I, I think. So, yeah, so she, you know, the way she looked at it is, you know, multiple approaches are needed and there's, there's different ways of examining a subject that um, provide insight that, that can't be provided by other parts. And, uh, and yeah. it makes things valuable uh, to have an integrated sort of viewpoint on it. So, talk about the Gaia hypothesis and, and specifically what her views on it were. Well, Gaia hypothesis rendered as simply as one can is that the Earth is a is alive. Well, you know, we, we know that the Earth is alive in the sense of everything that grows on it, but, but that, that, that there's a a total integration of some kinds of consciousness in everything in the world, the, the natural world. And I, her, 
she, I don't think she's, she made pronouncements on it. She was interested in it. She was exploring it. Um, but I think that it intrigued because it was a sense of a purposiveness and an integration that was not unlike the plumbing metaphor for it. Yeah. And so anybody who's familiar with the guy hypothesis, again, I'm sure there's people that will take on a pretty polarized view. They'd either be for it or against it, right? Yeah, of course. But it's another good example of where this kind of thinking about an idea is, is beneficial, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the hypothesis was presented and, um, you know, a lot of the background behind it was there this thinking that, you know, the living organisms on Earth are sort of mutually beneficial. So, yes. you know, if there's an imbalance in, in, an eco, in an ecosystem, there's going to be some organism that's going to come in and kind of fill it in and it will, it will bring it back to an equilibrium of sorts. Um, so it was, it was really big, you know, it got really big when it, when it first came out. Um, nowadays it's sort of, um, been disproven on, um, the, the, the grand scale, right? People are saying, well, you know, looking at global warming or climate change, some of these other things, you know, no, there's certain parts of the ecosystem. If you take it out, it's out and it's the balance, the new balance is now out of balance. There's not going to be a rebalance. Just as if you did damage to someone's head their their mind wouldn't be the same so I, I, there are attempts to disprove this and I get you know I, I, I'm rather fond of the guy hypothesis she she found it really interesting because it was not a materialist approach again just saying well the world is just filled with stuff for us to use mm-hmm, right you know which was sort of a as one take on the old testament christian injunction to multiply and use the world yeah uh, and she rejected that so to say that it was integrated uh, uh that it's self-sustaining and, and sometimes with the guy hypothesis, people make the error. Uh, I've, I've, I have heard people say this when I was uh, in the classroom from time to time that that well, that means that the the world would re, would replenish its oil because we need it. No, no, the world doesn't care whether we're there or not. The Gaia hypothesis does not assert that the world is doing this for us. The Gaia hypothesis is that the world is aware in uh, itself <laughs> because we can't get away from just focusing on ourselves no matter what yeah well, you know if the world's integrated well that's all for, why doesn't it just give us more it's it's it's, it's like the uh, I, I would love to hear Mitchley talk about this uh, the current water situation in you know, especially in uh, the droughts that are hitting just in our country hitting on a planetary scale uh, and people uh, in Phoenix, outside of Phoenix, uh, finding that now, just this week, and and across, you know, I'm sure other places in the past couple of years, but just this week, uh, one particular uh, community that closed the door on development. We we cannot do any more development because we do not have the water for this, and people getting outraged and saying, "I'll pay for the water," as if. Just by saying I'll pay for it, I've got the I've got the monetary resources to find it. No, you don't, because it doesn't <laughs> exist there now. And and so we still have this human idea that if we just shell out enough money, it's available. Mm-hmm. Which is whacked when it comes to yeah. the health of the world. Yeah. So I think you know what what's happened with the guy hypothesis is that as time has gone on, what they've found is that. Um, you know, the ecosystem is more complex than they thought it was when the hypothesis was developed. But a lot of the principles of it still kind of hold, right? Like like the the metaphor she was using with the the invasive species, right? Mm-hmm. It's true that if if an ecosystem starts to change and you start to see a, uh, an imbalance of one thing, you know, if, if the salinity gets too high and, you know, some things start to die... There's going to be some other species of seaweed or something that's going to 
thrive on that and it's going to grow. And there's going to be some other kind of fish that eats that seaweed that's going to propagate. So you're going to see an ebb and flow of different species based on how the environment works. Yeah, you know, obviously, Midgley and, and nobody else would, would make the, the statement that, you know, these things are going to replenish be, just because we're we're no, get, you know right, using them right. up. But what their statement was is that is basically what you said. The 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 entire ecosystem is is interconnected. It's a fabric, right? So there's no just pulling one thing out and having everything else remain the same. If you pull something out, something else is going to fill that space, and then something else that you know eats that or uses that for something. You know, there's going to be a change. And, um, you know, that still holds today. So, again, it's a, it's another area where that, that adversarial viewpoint doesn't really work. Because if you're going to throw out the entire hypothesis just because, you know, the grand elements of it don't, don't hold, you or yeah, yeah. A, then it's you're, you're really throwing out the baby with the bathwater as far as the importance of it. In her Gaia book, um, her book on, on the topic, she said, uh, I had to look, I couldn't remember exactly, uh, this is a quotation of the idea of the materialist is just a pile of stuff for us to use. Such a, she says, such a jump, lifeless jumble would be no more capable of being inured than an, an avalanche would. It's, and indeed, we until quite lately, our sages have repeatedly urged us to carry on a war against nature. We did not expect the earth to be vulnerable, capable of health or sickness, wholeness or injury, but it turns out that we were wrong. The earth is now unmistakably sick. The living processes that have so far kept the system working are disturbed, as shown, for instance, by the surge of extinctions. Hmm. Extinction events for so many species are increasing rapidly. Just offhand, in, in Florida, uh, the manatees were down to 6,000 manatees on the planet. Oh, that's, a, that's not a lot. And what's what's killing them? The farm runoff, which is causing red al- algae to, to grow, boats running into them, uh, lights, so there's no seasonality, all kinds of things. But in, the, in some total, it's killing the species. Well, that's just one species. Well, okay. We don't know how that one species necessarily keeps the whole system going. As you said, take one chunk out, take the carburetor off an engine. How's it gonna? How's that gonna work? Yeah, for you, yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> and it's more than just one species because I mean, a, a lot of scientists have actually said we've entered into a new epoch um, based off the mass extinctions that are taking place. And so, you know, that's the thing is this this guy hypothesis looking at the Earth as a living whole. What you find out is that. Okay, well, one species going extinct is devastating to a particular ecosystem. But when what it's looking like is a third or maybe a half of the species on the planet are going extinct, the whole Earth is going to start to die because of that. Because, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a, supply, a supply chain on some level, right? You have plants that get eaten by small animals that get eaten by bigger animals. So you take any, any piece of that chain out, anything, everything above it, kind of collapses you know so yeah it's um again it's a it's a very complicated issue and it's it's an idea that's worth thinking about yeah without jumping to conclusions of well yeah i definitely support it or no, no it's definitely bunk no, yeah. exactly <laughs> no but think about it it's, as you said that's what she's saying don't just say that science has all the philosophical answers, the science, that, that's back to her other metaphor. She's, she said the scientism, the idea of, of worshiping science is the only source of answers for everything, rather than taking what science can do and, and uh, honoring it and paying attention to it for those things, uh, because it's not static. Nothing is static. Philosophy is not static. Science is not static. But when you just say that's the only species, it would be like digging up everything else in your garden and planting one plant. Hmm. Okay. Is that plant going to feed us? Is that plant going to get everything that we need? Is that plant going to nurture the birds and whatever else? So it's not that you have to believe in some kind of spirituality. And she wasn't necessarily calling for that. You know, that's why she wasn't Christian. She said, I, 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 I said my prayers and I, I couldn't make myself say my prayers because um, 
Uh, there weren't any answers. <laughs> there, nothing was talking back. All right. So, yeah, she's not calling for believe this. It's think about it. Yeah. And the science is bearing out some of that. These a lot of there's a lot of um, food supplies and, and other supplies that are in danger because they're monocrops, especially in uh, the southeast with palm, palm trees. Mm-hmm. Palm trees are uprooting everything else. And what they're finding is that, well, palm trees don't provide um, the needed environment for a lot of other vegetation and animals. And it's putting a lot of other things in in danger. So she had similar views about um, natural selection, which we alluded to a little bit earlier. Um, Is there anything you want to say on that topic or you want me to throw in a couple? You start. Okay. So again, this is another, another idea that she was very keen on the idea of it and what science could offer and what science couldn't. And this is where she um, got into such an argument with Dawkins. Yeah. Is, yes, um, it is. Because <laughs> what she was looking at was the natural selection as, as proposed by Darwin. And um, and even even this prospect, right, is something that, that rankles a lot of religious people. Um, but it's, it's, kind of, it's an irrefutable fact pretty much right yeah. and if you explain it this way a lot of people are more um more uh, amenable to it uh the way i like to explain it is if i come across a religious you know somebody who's who has strong religious views on it i say well listen let's say you have a group of giraffes right and you have leaves that are high up on a tree well if the shorter giraffes can't reach the leaves they're not going to be able to eat and they're going to die the taller giraffes are going to eat the leaves and the taller giraffes will live. The taller giraffes will reproduce. They'll pass on the genetic component that makes their necks longer to their offspring and giraffes will gradually grow longer and longer necks. That's just the science. That's just the way it is. That's what Darwin um, was observing in the Galapagos and other places Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. that if you have a certain environment, animals adapt to that environment. Now, where the other aspects of it come in, and, you know, there's neo-Darwinism, and then there's also another aspect of it where if you look back at the beginning, if you're a religious person, right, and you you can't refute that, that's something that happens. We, we observe this happening. Yeah. Now, could you take the stance that one type of animal doesn't turn into another type of animal? You might be able to do that because we haven't, lived long enough to observe that happening now is there evidence for it in a fossil record yes is there there's indirect lines of evidence that say well probably in the past certain types of animals did indeed turn into other types but it's it's on a different plane then there's the neo-darwinism which is where dawkins kind of took it which said that well the genetics is kind of all there is almost right you you have these things and, and you go this way and Mitchell Lee said no that's not the way it is at all so i didn't articulate it very well but if you want to kind of clear what Actually, what her viewpoint you, was you, you did uh, first it goes back to other things she was saying as, as you've been expressing that 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 to make a religion of anything does not serve the purpose of philosophy. Mm. To make a religion of Darwinism, that is, to make it uh, the sum total beginning and end answer, rather than, yes, as you said, we, we see it with the giraffes, yeah, that sheep, you know, with the, with the Gaia, the, 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 the earth is a, an organism that continues to change and grow and develop. That, that all of that had of much use but the quasi scientific notions of of building a you know the, the metaphors people use of building a cathedral to to physics with with the of uh, colliders that they wanted to build and then she'd go back to the same thing that she said before oh you're building a cathedral all right what's the god all right but but if we don't have any if we don't have any uh, if consciousness is just a trick then we don't need a religion. We don't need a cathedral because we don't exist again. And so clearly we do. So clearly the things around us are changing. Uh, clearly all the evidence points to, to uh, uh, biological ev- uh, evolution uh, and natural selection. 
Um, but that, that it's not a, a salvational uh, thing and, and that it doesn't necessarily apply to all the social sciences or other kinds of things, that it, that it certainly applies to the biological organism. Yeah. And so you see a lot of that. I mean, probably the best example is behaviorism, right, in psychology. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you can't take an adversarial sort of view because behaviorism has actually provided us with the most um, scientific information on human behavior. So it's useful. Behaviorism is a useful paradigm. But should it be an all-encompassing paradigm of human psychology? No. no. You know, <laughs> That's what she would say, no. And, and you know, you, you've made me think, because we talked about this topic before, too, um, with transhumanism. Hmm. This, she, this was a bugaboo, uh, so to speak, for her because, uh, among other things, she's saying that when you start talking about artificial intelligence, as evolutionary uh, or as the machines that we make to enhance ourselves as an evolution, then you're throwing away, uh, getting away from and not considering the problems of being a human being on a planet in the conditions in which we are are in. Those machines are interesting and artificial intelligence is is being developed, but to say that that's our next evolution or uh, she rejected that. Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, kind of interesting, you know, because you could make an argument that that it is, but you can also make an argument that it's that it's not. <laughs> so and, go ahead and make your argument, right? That's what she's inviting. Right, right. To make your argument, I'll slice the derivatives if I need to. <laughs> so, yeah, it, real interesting. And, you know, her the fact that she just thought about some of these big ideas was was wild um let's let's end with talking about how what we've talked about so far kind of fit into her um ideas of morality yeah uh, well she she talks about a number of things she, she she talked about moral isolationism uh, for instance which is essentially the idea that because you live in your own culture and your own uh, circumstances people would say to her or generally oh well we can't possibly understand how anybody else uh, lives we can't make any judgments about how many how anybody else lives because we only understand our own well that was a kind of reductivism or reductionism and she was very much not a reductionist that did you say one thing has all the ideas so she would talk about utilitarianism but but utilitarianism does not solve or explain all moral decision making and so like with the other thing she said there, there are many many maps and many windows which didn't make her many ways to see things excuse me many ways to follow things but it didn't make her uh, a, a severe uh, what's the word i want a relativist hmm. it's, it's not well this is okay that's okay this is all okay no i'm just saying that there are many maps or many windows doesn't say that there is an infinitude <laughs> yeah. of maps. So a building may have lots of windows, and a library may be full of many maps. And there, we know that there. Are, I just love looking at maps. So this is this is a thing for me, right? So there are cultures that make maps of nothing but the water currents, Polynesian cultures, and you, you look at uh, photos of of these and, and uh, the work that the people have done making these and you look at it and say that's a map and then you explain what that's talking about for people who are going long distances on water uh you know what from from your work in the military so relief maps mm-hmm. and and we have a satellite maps and we have a, a plethora of maps we don't necessarily have an infinitude of maps so it's not like they're all equally useful at the same time Nope, satellite may, may not tell me anything about what I need to know to walk through uh, the local watershed to find one uh, spring. You know, I'm making it up, but it's bad. But <laughs> but so the map plentitude, a plentitude of maps is good, a plentitude of viewpoints is good, but also it so that 
the goodness is in that it guides us to a more complicated understanding of how morality works. So she's applying the same metaphorical system. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as we've talked about, a lot of this is sort of difficult to grasp, but I think we're narrowing in on it now. And I think that the maps is a good metaphor, right? Because, you know, a Polynesian map of the water isn't going to tell you about climbing a mountain. Right. You know, and a relief right. map isn't going to tell you anything about the depth of a water. <laughs> you know? And all of these a satellite map isn't going to tell you how tall a building is. All of these different things. Yeah. And yeah. so what she was saying is, yeah, don't just go out and, you know, draw your own map however however makes you happy that's not the answer <laughs> you know but the answer is there's all these maps that have that are accurate that people have put work into yeah. and if you try to use them in conjunction you're probably going to get pretty near the answer and the key is to realize what map gives you what information does natural selection and evolution provide you with an accurate information about certain things in the environment mm-hmm. yes does it provide you with all the answers No. Does the Gaia hypothesis provide you with some idea of how the Earth works together as an ecosystem? Yes. Does it provide you all the answers? No. Does religion provide you with some answers or some sort of, you know, know, mental construct about these questions that can't be answered otherwise? Yes. You know, and if that is valuable for people, then there's nobody to tell you that you can't, you can't use them. You know, if you believe that it's, if you believe that it's an accurate map and it jives with the other maps that you have, it gives you something. Right. So it's, it, it is funny because, you know, like, like we've talked about at the beginning, a lot of philosophy is people either trying to say, all right, this is the one map and we're narrowing in on this one thing. We're going to answer this question. Or there is, it's, you're, you immediately slip off into relativism. It's not just a slippery slope, it's a cliff. You know, you're walking, you're walking on a straight path and there's a cliff on either side, right? You either believe one thing or there's relativism. Yeah. Um, and Mitchell, that was kind of the beauty of all of her work is she, she did find that other way where to say, no, the things that science has been able to do are extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. They're also changing. Um, you know, and, and the things that, that people believe and your subjective experience, all of these things, you know, you have to take into consideration each one and you have to integrate it into a whole in order to come up with some viewpoint of what you believe, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that that's something that's going to be everlasting or unchanging. You know, right, because but, I, because everything is. And so uh, whether she's talking about... Uh, animal rights, which she was fascinated by, or or she's talking about uh, moral systems. I mean, she wasn't laying out a path to the perfect moral system because it doesn't exist. But she, but she, but she also said, for instance, the extremist views, she, she wouldn't go for that. So, so uh, to, to assert that everybody, every person is a completely individual, totally autonomous unit. And, and, you know, we've veered into this territory before too, which, because it, it always will come up. Uh, what's, can you, can you have a society when everyone is completely autonomous? N- no, it's, it's probably not going to work to have any kind of order. So there has to be some give and compromise and not completely realized individuality. And that caused trouble with some people too, but but she was trying to negotiate that. Uh, you know, one of the, the most beautiful things I think that she that she wrote was this. Uh, I, I'll see if I can find it. I, I, it's 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 a it's a. She talks about love, and 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 she wasn't getting all maudlin and gushy about it, but essentially, I. No, I can't quite it, but it, it, she she said that we don't love people enough. We 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 claim to, but then we we do these terrible things to huge populations around the planet. We allow them to happen because of our own actions. We don't take responsibility enough for our own actions, which itself is an act of love. And and I just I think that that's sort of a locus of where she was, the humanity. Part of her argument about the scientism was that it attempted to re- reduce or remove the idea that the humanities have any 
necessity for being in our lives. And that was utter bathwater for as far as he was concerned. Yeah, and I mean, that's a, that's the a struggle that we're still facing today. And all you have to do is look at budgets around your local colleges to figure that out. And it's going to be interesting how that gets addressed, too, in, in the context of AI, as AI starts writing songs and plays and all these other things, <laughs> right? You know? Yes. So these questions are, are, are still looming large in, in con- public consciousness. And Midgley just did a good job of just thinking about them and, you know, just exploring them. And um, there's a lot of things we didn't get to talk about. That was a big one. Is I, You know, I'm a huge... Um, hugely interested in animal consciousness and she devoted a lot of time to that we didn't really get to touch on it but we will in the future i'm assuming at some point we'll probably do an episode on animal consciousness and she'll get she'll get a good mention in there but yeah just a fascinating character and um you know we look forward to to exploring some more of them in in the future so until next time keep up